Hello everyone, you're listening to Things of Interest. I'm Serena Chen. And I'm Sophia France. Today we're going to have a little chat about social media. It's this thing that's been digging around uh, in my mind a lot lately, especially since recently so many reports have come out uh, about Russia's involvement in the 2016 presidential election on social media, how they've made fake accounts, they've made fake groups, they've made targeted ads, sponsored content, just to, not necessarily to, actually I don't think it's been concluded whether they, they're influencing people to vote for Donald Trump or they're just like sowing discontent, probably both. Uh, lately there was one news article that came out that found that um, there was a, a anti-Muslim protest organized by a fake anti-Muslim group on Facebook. And then the counter-protest was organized by another fake Russian-backed like pro-Muslim group. And these were protests that happened in real life. Um, I think there was like another one of these situations in Texas. I'm not sure what the protests were over, but both the protests and the counter-protests were organized by two separate but both Russian-backed fake Facebook groups. And I'm sure, like, by now we all know that Twitter has a bot problem and that a big part of this 2016 election was just, like, a lot of Russian-backed Twitter bots um, sowing discontent, driving people to extremism, just writing really extreme things on any, quote, side, uh, just to sow hatred amongst people and really, like, turn people against each other. And all of this has been, like, just bumping around in my head lately because, I mean, the first and obvious question is why isn't Twitter doing anything about this? Uh, Why isn't Facebook doing anything about this? And why isn't Google doing anything about this? Like, if you search a bunch of controversial, topical things in Google, you'll get a lot of fake news. You'll get a lot of news from Breitbart. You'll get a lot of news from Infowars. You'll get a lot of news just from websites that are known to be conspiracy theory websites. And, like, you ask yourself, like, why isn't any of these massive US-based tech companies doing anything to stop it? And after a while, you conclude that it's because their bottom line, um, their survival, requires advertising dollars. And the thing is that outrageous extremist content gets clicks, it gets eyeballs, it gets engagement, it gets replies. Um, And unless that bottom line changes, then all of these these social networks, uh, Google itself, is always going to be optimized for extreme content. It's always going to be optimized for stuff that isn't necessarily true, but will rile people up. And that's what's been on my mind a lot lately. Well, and I think when it comes to Google, like the way that they have censored in China previously has kind of shown us that they're beholden to other groups, not necessarily always countries, but certainly other organizations, because Google wants to maintain the monopoly it has on search engines. Like, yeah. while admittedly, if people wanted to protest Google, I guess they could use Bing. 
no one's going to do that. No, <laughs> no, they've got such a... And it's weird because it's like the internet was supposed to be this whole like free market, right? Anyone can enter and anyone can be a competitor. It's really easy to start a competing business. It's really cheap. And yet we've ended up with these monoliths. We ended up with these monopolies. We've ended up with Google. We've ended up with Amazon with their monopoly so big they bought Whole Foods last year, like a real life <laughs> grocery store. Uh, we've ended up with Facebook with like how many billions of users now? It's like half the world is on Facebook, half the entire earth. We've ended up with Twitter, which is a shit product, let's be honest. Um, and yet it it's something that I check every day and I can't just stop. That's another thing that gets me about these products is that they're they're optimized for addiction. They're optimized to keep your eyeballs on their screens, on their ads, essentially. And, and I mean, that's that's why engagement's so important, right? Yeah, it's it's all it's all about ads. It's because the whole internet and the internet economy runs off of advertising, which sucks. It's the worst because then now people who are building Facebook, who are building Twitter. They're not optimizing for your happiness. They're not optimizing for you to have like a good experience, which is, you know, what everyone tells designers to optimize for. They're optimizing to sometimes make you feel good, but most of the time make you feel kind of shitty. So you'd be primed to buy whatever is in those ads. Like I don't really go on Facebook much, but I was bored the other day and like, what do you do when you're bored? You go on Facebook. And I was scrolling through and I realized that like, as I was scrolling through the feed, the more I read, the shittier I felt about myself. Have you ever gotten that? Not really. Yeah? Cause I just close it when I feel bad. I'm like, Oh, I feel gross now. Bye Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Same. But like this time it, it really stopped me cause I had all these like social media's bad thoughts in my head. And I was like, like, what is it that I'm feeling specifically? Why do I feel kind of shitty? Like, these are posts from my friends, usually about positive things, mostly about positive things. And when I read them, I smile. I'm like, I feel good about this. And then I move on to the next one. But the overall feeling is inadequacy. And it's this kind of, like, feeling... And the other thing that was really interesting that I noticed about myself was that as I was scrolling through, I felt more and more of a need to post something, even though nothing interesting had happened to me. Like I'd be posting <laughs> about, I don't know, my toast that morning, it, but I felt the need to post something even mundane just so I could see myself in that timeline, just so I felt like I existed in this world of all my friends, like living their lives and having great times. And then I stopped and I realized, holy shit, like, this feeling is designed. This feeling is is meant to happen because it's going to get me to post things, even if it's mundane, even if I don't really care about it and no one else would care about it. It's going to get me to engage more with the site. It's going to get me on the site longer. And this is terrible. Like, we're optimizing for people to feel not necessarily bad, but to feel whatever they need to feel to stay on the website longer. And that 
the fault of that is advertising. The fault of that is engagement is the number one thing to optimize for. And then at the end of the day, it's like, and this is the the uh, conclusion that I always keep coming back to. At the end of the day, the problem is the money. It's like you need to pay for the website. The internet runs off advertising for its economical system. And then fuck capitalism. And then I roll my eyes at myself at how, like, typical me I'm being. Oh, there have been a few articles recently about how millennials appear to hate capitalism. It's like, well, yes. We're experiencing Um, the effects of post-capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. But when it comes to uh, Facebook, the other thing regarding Facebook in the 2016 election is the bulk of advertising that was paid for by the Republicans wasn't convincing people to vote for Trump. It was either convincing people to vote or not to vote because Facebook can give you this incredibly specific demographic that you Mm. want to advertise to. And so similar to how I think – I don't know if this was ever proven, so I'm going to say alleged just in case Mm – but the Bush campaign allegedly uh, took a bunch of people with black-sounding last names off the voter roll in um, swing states because that basically means, like, black people are more likely not to vote for Republicans. Wild. Why would anyone do that anyway? Um, and so they just removed these people from the voter roll and then they couldn't vote on election day because they weren't enrolled and they had no idea they'd been unenrolled. But this That's is wild. just the more modern way of doing that is, like, convincing people either through, like, overt advertising or like more fucking sneaky bullshit yeah um to go and vote or not to vote and i mean this was kind of the election where it swung on that i mean it was an election that was a messy steaming pile of bullshit in many different ways (laughs) but it was an election that was sort of won or lost on who turned out Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, like, the voter ID laws that were put into place in the years before would have had a lot to do with that. But the thing that really gets me about, like, advertising specifically to to European Americans to go out and vote and then telling people not to vote and advertising that specifically targeting that towards black Americans is that it's like, how do we police that as a public? You know, because what you see... When you go onto Facebook, when you go onto Twitter, is a completely customized feed just for you. And everyone is seeing completely different things on the same website. So it's not like it's not like I can see an ad saying, Hey, black people don't vote. Then I could be like, Excuse me, New York Times, did you see this? Because this is a thing. I can't even do that because I can't see it. Like we as a um as a public, as a group of people, we as a community, we don't have a common basis of truth anymore. Yeah, and so to police it as a public, we need that support and that buy-in from those organisations, and we're not going to get that. No. Because as much as, like, you know, um, I think one of the things that said a lot about the Obama campaign is how many small donations Obama got Mm. that, like, funded the bulk of his campaign. Like, that was an incredible groundswell of movement. But we're all not going to get that to be, like, should we sue Facebook? Everyone, give us a dollar so we can figure it out. Like, (laughs) or, like, we're going to, like, bribe Facebook to stop telling people. And it wouldn't even be explicitly, like, hey, black people don't vote. No. Or, hey, like, um... You know, people who fit the demographics of dem- um, Democrats in this particular swing state don't vote. 
it would be things like, does your vote even count? Yeah. What's the point of voting? Yeah, what is oh, democracy? democracy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's that kind of stuff. It's sneaky. I currently have um, a point in my thesis, which is a placeholder for when I actually get around to writing the section that says uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Yeah. Which is regularly attributed to Winston Churchill, but he was actually quoting someone else whose name doesn't matter. So their name obviously does matter. I feel I should put this on the record now. Their name clearly matters. I just don't remember it. <laughs> I'm reminded of that. Um, oh, was it from The Office? And uh, Michael Scott wrote up a quote and then quoted the whole thing and put his name down below. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Um, I sort of occasionally make the point when Americans or people in North America make sweeping statements about democracy, about how it seems to work okay in New Zealand, but thanks for that. <laughs> um, I'm strongly of the opinion that MMP is probably one of the best systems. Yeah. But that's fine. Yeah. I mean, like, it's been absolutely overhashed that the um, state electors system in America is a steaming pile of garbage and should probably be changed, but won't be because it works for the people who are in power. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Time for American Revolution Part 2. Actually, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. How valid do you feel talking to people in other countries about their politics? Because I'm going to give context for this. Like, mm -hmm. So the Australian marriage equality debate has been happening. We're speaking from the past. Um, it'll be over by the time you hear this. Oh, God. Um, mm. But basically, like, I haven't been a huge political activist about it, except to sort of, like, encourage the groups I'm part of to make formal statements mm -hmm. um, and to make the point that, like, while this is clearly an election, like, uh, sorry, not an election, um, a survey that affects me, I can't vote in it. How fucked up is that? Uh, but I also don't feel like it's really my place to tell Australians how to vote in this. Because, like, realistically, it's a problem of Australian law that they should have fixed, like, ten years ago, but I guess they're getting around to it. Mm. Um, like, and so I feel like this is really – I will provide support to the Australian LGBTQ community – but I feel like I can't be on the front lines of this. I don't want to be that annoying queer who, like, <laughs> talks to someone who's on the fence or, like, considering not voting. And they're like, God, that girl sucked. Like, we're going to vote no. Like, mm. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to outstep my bounds there. And I'm yeah. quite conscious of the fact that this is, like, a national problem. And as much as it affects me, it is not, like, my problem to have a voice in. Compared to, say, for example, the way Australia treats the refugees of Manus and Nauru, which like, I feel I can have a voice in mm. because it's a human rights issue. Yep. And, like, it, everyone in the world can have a voice in that and be like, hey, you are torturing them. That is all kinds of job. Yeah, but how do you feel about that sort of balance between, I mean, you're a New Zealander, mm -hmm. but, like, talking to American people about American politics, mm. that balance between not wanting to overstep your bounds talking about something that to them... Mm is an intensely personal issue, mm. but also trying to be like, hey, <laughs> it's messed up, fix it, please. <laughs> well, I guess you've kind of done the thing that I would have done, which is consider context and consider um, the effect that whatever issue would have on the global community rather than just the local or the national community. And, like, with any situation, context is any everything, right? Context is king. So 
It really depends on the issue that we'd be talking about. So on the issue of, I don't know, let's say on the issue of specific tax codes in the United States. It's like, okay, well, maybe I have an opinion on that because I'm a nerd who, like, reads about tax policy. But that's not really something that I would talk publicly a lot about at all. Um, Yeah. And I'd maybe, like, I don't know, repost some some articles or some other stuff because I do have um, a bunch of American friends. It's like, okay, well, I hope this would be relevant to them. But otherwise, it's like, meh, whatever. But on on the topic of things like uh, the Kremlin influence in the 2016 election, uh, I've had people come up to me and ask me, like, why do you care so much about the American election? You don't live in America. You're not an American. But the thing that we kind of have to accept is that America is seen as the leader in a lot of cases in the Western Hemisphere. And... Their culture permeates everyone's. I mean, especially after World War II, they have held the mantle. Um, and, of course, this can be argued that it's it's not rightfully held, but no matter what, they've held the... Being the moral leaders of the Western Hemisphere, I don't think that's necessarily uh, right. I don't think that's necessarily true, but that is their default status. So when they let something like obvious uh, corruption and influence to the degree that we've seen in the past year, when they let that just slip and when they say we're okay with this, that sends a message to everyone else in the, uh, in the Western Hemisphere and that in turn affects us. And I will keep having conversations about these things because, well, it's not just an American thing. We're living in an increasingly globalized world, so it's a it's a global topic. We should all be talking about it. We should all care about it, and we should all prepare ourselves for uh, I don't know the likely or unlikely event that something similar to this might happen in our own country. So in that case, yeah. it's like. Shit, yeah, I'm going to ramble about it. <laughs> well, in Australia and New Zealand have a m- more recent historic relationship with America in the form of ANZUS. Hmm. And, like, certainly New Zealand has pulled away more, but I think, like, Australia regularly finds itself at a crossroads where it has to choose between doing the right thing and doing the easy thing. And I think that's reflected in Manus and Nauru, where the easy thing was to just leave people there. Um, so for those of our mm. listeners who don't know, uh, refugees who came to Australia by boat um, for a particular set of years, um, <laughs> do I remember them? No. Uh, were put on offshore detention centres with the idea that they would be processed and sent to other countries because – in one election, both of the major political parties in Australia made promises that no one, no refugees would ever enter Australia by boat in effort to try and stop people smuggling from Indonesia, from Malaysia, from similar countries. Um, and so I think there were about 700 
people in on Manus Island and I think around 500 in Nauru, but I am saying these off the top of my head, so I might be slightly off on those numbers. But basically, like, less than 2,000 people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, quite recently the detention centre on Manus Island was closed. The refugees were not moved. So power, water, food were all cut off. The uh, security guards left and those just under 700 people were left on that island. And that is the easy thing to do. How is that easy? Because for the government... They see it as they are taking a strong stance. They will never be accused of going back on their promise because those people tried to come to Australia by boat, uh-huh. and so they left them there. They right, were like, "Well, they haven't come to Australia by boat. They're still on Manus Island." You could, you could say, "Hey, New Zealand," or "Hey, well, any New other Zealand. of our allies." New Zealand has offered to take them, and the argument against that has been that once they achieve New Zealand citizenship, they could just move to Australia. And it's like, well, there's 700 of them, so please calm down. (laughs) Like, what are you doing? Well, if they Um, do do that, they're not going to be coming to Australia as refugees by boat. So there, you've kept your promise. Like, I just... And so in that instance, like, Australia has chosen the terrible thing. And a lot of people... So the, the people, I think it's predominantly men are still there, like, they've just been left there. And a lot of people, um, myself included, have just, like, rung the Prime Minister's office and been like, hey, I'm concerned about this. Mm. And so I hope, I hope very strongly that the sort of swell of public action and, like, direct public, like, calls to the Prime Minister Mm. will really help that. Um, But then on the other hand, quite recently a good thing happened where, so in the Australian constitution, we've talked about this before, section 44 means you have to take all reasonable steps to not have dual citizenship, essentially. Bunch of people did. High court said bunch of these people, like, are just not eligible for government. That includes people who are both of the Green parties with One Nation and um, the National Party candidate who was a deputy prime minister who actually holds dual Australian New Zealand citizenship and was nominated for New Zealander of the Year. Um, which okay. is a very New Zealand thing to do. <laughs> so weird. And I think that was the right thing to do, because essentially to look past that would be to say, well, this bit of our constitution doesn't really matter. And as much as I hate slippery slope arguments, like I think that would probably be one where I'd be willing to say, like, hey, ignoring part of your constitution is not good, because it kind of suggests you can ignore other parts. Right. And, like... You know, when you compare the good that was done by that to the overwhelming shittiness of what's happening on Manus Island right now, they certainly don't balance each other out. But I do think, like, that sort of recognising that those people had, you know, violated the Australian Constitution and were not allowed to sit in government um, or in the Senate, like, I think that was a very clear step against corruption. Mm. But Got some rules and we're sticking to them. I tend to be quite optimistic. (laughs) and actually, that's that's one of the really good things about social media is there is a gentleman, I forget where he's originally from, but he has a Twitter account um, and he is on Manus Island and he is talking about what's happening. He has Twitter and Facebook and he is posting about what is occurring hmm. in, the, in the detention centre. Like um, a couple of days ago, refugees were having to dig for water yeah. because they had no running water and he posted 
pictures of this. He is telling people what is happening. And I think that is, despite all of the shortcomings and personalized feeds and engagement and advertising and bullshit, like, I think that is the overwhelming good of Twitter is that people can tell their own stories and their own voices and make it, like, make the world aware when just, like, flagrant human rights abuses are going on, even Mm. when that's coming from a supposedly developed country. Hmm. Yeah, well, that that's definitely the the reason why we need it. Like, we need to keep it around. Twitter played a key role in the Arab Spring in 2011, and it played a key role in the Black Lives Matter movement. And these are the things that Twitter is really good for, is the whole idea that essentially everyone's chatter, everyone's tweets, everyone's voice is on the same playing field and you can talk to journalists you can talk to celebrities you can talk to people of th- of authority um just as easily as you can talk to your mate steve or any uh, or like an internet friend who's into the same anime as you like that's all the same interaction and that's the thing that makes social media great is that it exposes all of us to things that we would not have known. Um, It exposes us to voices that we otherwise would not have heard. And it gives us the power to interact with people who we otherwise just would not be in the same circles of. And that's a good thing. So it's, I guess the question is like, how do we keep the good parts of social media? How do we optimize for an experience that's good, that's based off of um, value, that's based off of the human connection that you get out of it, rather than fucking getting you addicted and making you see as many ads as possible. Well, I genuinely don't know if we can keep all the good stuff and remove that sort of getting you addicted, getting you sort of, like, wanting that buzz from social media, right? Because, like... Mm most of the things that control stuff like addiction is um, dopamine cycles, which is like, you feel good when you do it, so you do it again. Yeah. So if we removed all the bad stuff from social media, we'd probably just get more addicted. Um, uh, oh, no, I mean, like, removing the... Um... Removing the perverse incentives towards addiction. Exactly. Addiction. Yeah, yeah, and I get that. Um, I mean, like... All of it comes back to money, right? Exactly. This is the exact conclusion I came to. And then I was like, God damn it, Serena, you're such like a typical anti-capitalist fucking millennial. Like, I was so disappointed in myself. But that that's the problem. You're right. Like, it, these websites, these apps, they need money to survive. And to make money, they need to advertise. That's... And shit, it's like, it, it was the same problem that we um, we came across with Hungary. So Hungary was a, a magazine that a couple of friends and I, including Sophia, were involved in. It's like a small project trying to like change the media landscape for teen girls because it wasn't great. And we had no ads. There was no ads on the website because ads were shit. Ads were the the. <laughs> The crux of the problem, ads were the things that made you feel bad about yourself so they could sell you products. So no ads. And of course we didn't make any money. So it's like, and this is, this is the problem that journalists face. This is the problem that Washington Post, the New York Times, these 
massively respected outlets of uh, news and journalism, that's the same problem they face, is that the web requires you to be good at showing people ads. But as soon as, like, you do sponsored content, the uh, the value of your own real content goes down. So what do we I'm do? Seeing, um, so I'm seeing an increasing number of websites that are doing sponsored content mm. where the sponsored content has nothing to do with the group funding it. So the spin-off is um, a website we've talked about a bit before. Mm. Uh, I was recently interviewed for an article by the Royal Institution of Australia mm-hmm. about sort of the science behind sexuality. Hot tip, it's not good. Um, <laughs> but you should still read the article. Uh, and that article was sponsored by GlaxoSmithKline, um, who, like, there's no drugs to, like, they don't sell curing the gay drugs. Mm. Because they'd be very quickly run out of town if they tried to do that. So, like, they've got nothing to do with this article, but they did mm-hmm. make it possible. And they made it possible for the writer, um, Kelly, to spend quite a while on it. So we were sort of going back and forth for a couple of days while we talked about, you know, sort of the research and my opinions on it and, like, how that fits into the broader LGBTQ community. Um, and that's... I think that's a really good model. Mm. Um, I hope I hope it shakes out to be a really good model because I think if you sponsor something that isn't related to your area, that allows journalistic objectivity. Yeah. Um, my sceptical mind is, is saying, oh, but all of the biggest companies in the world today are are all, like, weird monopolies that have stakes in everything, like um, telecommunications companies that are also media producers, television show producers that are also... Well, like, Mitsubishi makes uh, instruments and motorcycles, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Samsung makes uh, your phones and also medical equipment. Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, when when you look at the spin-off, a lot of uh, groups that sponsor articles are often quite small New Zealand-owned businesses, which I Mm. really appreciate. I I realise, like, I keep talking about the spin-off in such glowing terms is because they're amazing. They're they're pretty great. Yeah. They did a fantastic job on the most recent election um, Mm. and the post- sort of post-election articles, and I love them a lot. Mm. Um, But, yeah, so they – and I think that's – a really interesting way to do it. The Royal Institution of Australia League, um, I think having an article not related to, for example, pharmaceuticals sponsored by a pharmaceutical company increases like how you feel about that brand. It makes you feel better about it. You're like, Oh, Hey, corporate responsibility. Mm. Cool shit. GSK. Mm. Um, I think there are probably people within for example, GlaxoSmithKline, who genuinely think that sponsoring scientific journalism unrelated to pharmaceutical work is really important. And, like, I fully respect that. Like, I don't necessarily think that the people who make the decisions to sponsor these articles have, like, you know, the thinking about profit all of the time. Mm, yeah. But I do recognise that, like, it raises the profile, it raises the brand recognition, and it raises how you feel about that brand. Yeah. And... Arguably, that may be enough for these companies that they get that good brand recognition. People see them and they're like, oh, yeah, they do good stuff. They're 
they have corporate responsibility. And that's like the entire point of corporate responsibility, right? Is to make yeah. people feel good about your brand. Um, Rio Tinto, take note. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, oh, I bag on this kind of stuff a lot because I'm cynical at the moment, but I don't know, like, capitalism, we can complain about it, but it's a thing that's obviously not going away. So the best that we can do is find the least evil ways to make it work, essentially. Yeah, definitely. And I think, and I think, like, I hope, again, like, I am probably out of the two of us, the more naive and optimistic one. And (laughs) that's definitely a luxury I've been allowed to an extent because my family's white and rich. Um, But I like, I like to think that people becoming journalists still have that incredible value of journalistic integrity. Um, And I was talking to my mum about this the other day because she wasn't living in New Zealand during the time of the Springbok tour. And I sort of asked, like, well, would you have been in that protest? Like, if you've been here, like, would you have protested it? And she thought very hard and she said, no, because I'm a journalist. Hmm. And because once you become part of a protest, you become part of the story. Yeah. And like, I don't necessarily think that's always the right option, but to just have her sort of like take that strong line of like not becoming part of something that she cared really strongly about mm. because she needed to be able to be objective about it or at least give the appearance of objectivity. But I think mm. it's also easier to be objective when you don't get involved in those kinds of protests. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like, more important to her and I like to think that journalists today also have that incredibly high standard of journalistic objectivity like you can definitely have spin on articles and Mm. boy oh boy do we have that in like a lot of newspapers in both New Zealand and Australia Uh, (laughs) but I like to think that journalists today have that standard, that they want to be objective, yeah. that they want to be able to tell the story right. And so being sponsored by a particular company on one article won't necessarily change how they view or talk about that com- um, company in a different article. Hmm. I think I think you're right. I do believe that the journalists today have that integrity. Um, I guess my worry is that there's not a lot of money in journalism. Um, And so while they probably won't be influenced by whatever X company is sponsoring the current article and then there'll be another company sponsoring the next article, whatever, I don't think they particularly care about that. Um, The problem is when they're they're running out of jobs in which there are companies doing sponsored articles and then they have to become like content creators, which which is a very common thing that journalists have to do is to kind of do like a part-time journalism thing, a part-time content creation for a random websites thing, writing blog posts about uh, uh, how great SEO is. I don't know. I <laughs> Healthy eating. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that. Um, so while I think the integrity is still there, again, capitalism is the problem. Money is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Although, uh, I don't know. Like, I've been talking a lot about I've just been bagging on capitalism a lot. But at the same time, I have to admit that I think the reason why we're in this 
period of uh, relative stability of um, at least in the Western Hemisphere. Can you just like quickly define what you mean by Western Hemisphere? Because I don't think that's a universally stable term. Uh, so European countries, uh, North America, Australia, New Zealand, okay. just like super like Eurocentric kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the biggest reason why we are in a period of relative stability is because of capitalism, is because of trade. Um, war is bad for trade, and therefore we try our best not to go into wars. But in saying that, we try our best not to go into wars with our trading partners, yeah. with, um, with people whom we don't trade with, and with people whom uh, a country, not naming any names, may see this other country, not naming any names, as a, a potential uh, for exploitation for, uh, for their resource. Yeah. They will. It, it's then economically beneficial to go into that war. We saw proxy wars quite a lot during the period of the Cold War, um, yes. and I think we we are actually seeing less of that now. I say slowly and carefully. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know, like how we would classify less or more, but they're definitely less explicit. Yeah, but I mean the the whole Middle Eastern kerfuffle. Uh, is definitely a it's a proxy war, and and there's like two different proxy wars going on or something. I... Syria, I think, is both internal problems in Syria as well as particularly Russian involvement, but the lack of willingness of the U.S. to get involved, particularly following the use of chemical weapons, has probably meant that that's dragged on a lot longer than it needed to. And I recognize like the lack of willingness of the US to get involved because they always stick their bloody oar in with the Middle East. It's like, mm, Saddam Hussein, he seems like a cool bro to be in power. Oh no, now let's get rid of him. Um Right, they're, but they're involved though. Like Yeah. They're just not explicitly involved. They they, yeah. they do funnel money to different uh, resistance groups. And a lot of people, and this is a cool reminder to check if you have a KiwiSaver or other sort of investment portfolio yes. or your bank is investing money, check that they're not putting that into arms dealers. Yeah. Um, because I think... We had a bit of a scandal last we year. We found out quite recently uh, that one of the KiwiSaver things was... Um, I don't know if it was arms dealers or tobacco. One of the bad guys. Arms dealers, tobaccos, and mines, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to have like really clear bad guys sometimes, <laughs> you know? It's just like, you know, who's bad people who make guns. Yeah, I miss the the days of our childhood where we'd watch cartoons and they'd be like, good person, bad person. And it would it would just be so clear. Yeah, now we just have male feminists called Todd who say Babe, why can't I say the N-word? What fear of the name just increases fear of the thing itself, and I'm not afraid of black people, babe. Fucking Todd. I actually I know a Todd and I should very briefly say he's lovely just quite nice really. Um but Todd the male feminist is my fictional guy who every new terrible male feminist I meet, I add his characteristics to Todd. Um (laughs) (laughs) so I don't have to explicitly name any names. (laughs) I'm kind of tempted to talk about the um 
Hollywood falling apart finally. Oh, well. yeah, let's talk about that. T- uh, tell me about that. <laughs> this is my comment on Hollywood falling apart. Um, so over the past, was a couple of months now? Yeah. Increasing stories have come out surrounding various big names in Hollywood. This first being Harvey Weinstein. I saw um, uh, Tulip Fever recently, which was produced by him, which I didn't know till the end. Oh, it's he real bad. It's real bad. <laughs> so, hot tip, don't go see Tulip Fever. There's like an uncomfortable number of sex scenes to seeing it with your parents, and more oh, than that, no. the plot is bad. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> oh. I saw it... Oh, okay, oh, brief no. aside. I saw it in Tauranga as well. So, like, me and my parents are the youngest people by a way in the movie theatre, and the what? first half of the movie is just, like, it's a lot of fucking... And I'm just sitting there just, like, very uncomfortable that a bunch of 70 and 80-year-old people yeah. are watching this with me. I was like, oh. That's bizarre. Old people are allowed to have sexualities, but not near me. Please not. Uh, <laughs> not right near me. <laughs> I support your right to have a sexuality, but have it somewhere else. <laughs> um, anyway. <laughs> so Harvey Weinstein and that sort of all broke at once, people talking about his sexual harassment and, I believe, sexual assaults as well. Um, and he spoke back and everything happened. And then Anthony Rapp, who is in Star Trek Discovery and is a brilliant actor, um, talked about a time when he was 14 and Kevin Spacey sort of sexually harassed slash assaulted him. Oh, God. Um, and Kevin Spacey responded to this by going, I'm coming out as gay. Uh, just which, no like, words. So, no words for so that. I read Kevin Spacey's apology, and I read the first mm-hmm. paragraph, and I'm like, that's a great apology. He's recognizing he did it, like, because I've recently in the group chat been having to talk to people about why we don't listen to Chris Brown. Mm-hmm. <sighs> um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, we don't listen to his music, because doing that, like, sort of, Complicitly accepts the fact that you can like be a good enough artist to have domestic violence excused. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so actually recognizing he did something, even if he doesn't remember it, apologizing for it, like that's a good apology to me. Hmm. And then I read the second paragraph, and it was like, also I'm gay, and that was like just so cunning, because people have been thinking and talking about Kevin Spacey's sexuality for years, for decades. Like, since American Beauty came out, people mm-hmm. have been like, but are you gay, though? Mm. Um, and to have him do that was very clearly going, sure, I'm sorry about that, but here's your headline. Yeah. And then in the last few days... A lot of women have talked about Louis C.K. Mm-hmm. sexually harassing and just, yeah, just, like, reading it, I am slightly horrified and reading a lot of what women journalists, particularly in Hollywood, and other people have sort of, like, made comments. Um, mm. So he has, I think produced and starred in a movie called I Love You Daddy where a guy's daughter is approached by a sort of Woody Allen type Mm -hmm. and he makes a lot of jokes about like masturbating in front of people and 
doing things like that. And when this was first announced, a lot of women in Hollywood were just kind of like, ready to be, he's a sexual predator. Like, yeah. this is just his way of saying, I can get away with it. Yeah. Turns out, <laughs> a lot of women have come forward. Oh, wild. Um, and is it bad that I'm not surprised by any of this? Like, any of the Harvey Weinstein stuff. Even the Kevin Spacey stuff. Any of the Louis C.K. Like, you get that vibe. You do, but he also, I think Louis C.K. is also one of the more, like, pernicious things. And one of the things I sort of have to think hard about is that he presented himself as being on the side of women. He has jokes where he talks about how men are the worst thing that have ever happened to women. Yeah. And hearing about this is like, oh, you know this from experience, because you're a bad part. Like, you are bad. (laughs) Um. And I think, like, that is something I think about a lot because I realize, like, that I am a really outspoken feminist mm. and typically what men who are predators do is they make friends with women, like like us, mm. right? Like, women who make them seem safe because you look at this guy and you go, but, you know, this outspoken feminist likes him, so clearly he's fine. You, like, you get that, like, yeah. I might get a weird vibe from him, but these other people who I respect seem to like him, so I guess yeah. he's okay. Yeah. Um, and this is something I think about a lot, because like, I worry that sort of by being friends with people, or at the very least friendly with people, mm-hmm. I give them implicit, like, you know, more security to women. Yeah, and implicit um, support, even if it's and, not. Like, that's, that's definitely not our duty to be worried about, right? But like... Yeah. <laughs> I don't think, like, women carry this responsibility to be perfect at all, and I don't think we carry this responsibility to know who the sexual predators in our friend group are so we we can, like, not be friends with them, right? Like, Mm. that's absolutely not our job, but it is still something that plays on my mind a lot because I realise that's what predators do. And this is Mm -hmm. something that came out with, um... It was something I thought a lot about after the Nick Robinson news broke. Uh, Nick Robinson was a content producer for Polygon. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of women came out and they were like, oh, when I was underage, she kept messaging me, telling me to send him nudes. Like, and this was investigated and he left Polygon and, you know, nothing sort of official has been announced, but generally, like, we should err on the side of believing the women who were affected by this. And Mm -hmm. so props happened. Um, (laughs) And I sort of saw that and I thought, Okay, like I can see that because he makes some off-color jokes, but one of the other content producers on Polygon, Simone de Rochefort, like I really look up to as a feminist. Like I think she's fantastic, and she certainly made mistakes, but like she tries to learn and grow from them. Um, and she really, you know, it's, and I'm sure, like to an extent, they have to when they produce content. But like she talked glowingly about Nick on Polygon content, so I was like. He kind of skewed me up, but the fact that Simone really liked him made me feel like maybe I was just being, you know, weird about white boys with bad haircuts. Mm-hmm. And that made me sort of look quite strongly internally and think about, like, men that I have known mm. who have been sort of on 
the edge and I haven't been sure about them and I sort of remain friends with them because I don't want to rock the boat or anything yeah and then I went on to Facebook and deleted a bunch of people <laughs> I was like mm, no 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 I know you're a sexual predator we are no longer friends yeah um and like that's definitely that is something again that I'm thinking about in the wake of this Louis CK news and I'm sure there is more news to come about yep. other people in Hollywood because we cannot trust men apparently they just enjoy power too much um trash what's new <laughs> fucking <laughs> this podcast has come full circle turns out men suck um <laughs> <laughs> our findings <laughs> um and sort of like where our responsibilities lie because i place this responsibility on myself but i also recognize that it is far too heavy a burden to put on anyone else you know yeah, I mean, I think we should all do the best we can in managing these situations. It's uh, it's so difficult, though, because it's like, I don't know, I've had a lot of um, quote-unquote male feminist friends who would play up some social justice comments when they're around me very pointedly and not subtly at all. And it really cool allies. Makes, yeah, and it makes you question... <laughs> It makes you question the whole motive behind everything, right? It makes you question, like, are, are you doing these things because you honestly believe that we're all flawed people and we all need to do better and we all need to change for the betterment of, like, our friends and everyone around us? Or are you doing this just to, like, get social brownie points from from others? Like, it's – and it it really – I really struggle with this because – I don't want them to stop being a feminist. I don't want them to stop talking about these things. And I, like, I want them to be involved in these communities and I want them to be good allies and I want them to support others. I want them to support human rights. I want them to support building a better future. That's really important. I don't want to alienate any of these people. But at the same time, it's like, it's like, uh, what, what are your motives here? It's that weird double standard where you want men to keep being vocal about feminism, but also to stop sexually harassing women. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, I don't know, there's, there's a, and that's the weird feeling that like, that's the weird vibe that you get. And it was the same kind of like weird vibe that I got from Louis CK for a long time was that Hmm. he did, he was very vocal, um, about how men were shit. He was very vocal about how we need to be better to women. We need to be better humans. And it was like, yes, I agree with that. But there was a strange, and I can't describe this. I can't, I can't really pinpoint what made it, what made me feel suspicious. Um, Because obviously I had, like, we didn't know about these stories then. But there was definitely something and I and I get this from a whole bunch of people in real life it's just that something's not quite right um I don't know I don't know where I'm going with this it's just a very strange feeling and I struggle with it a lot I think also we as women are often taught to not trust our instincts Hmm. and that's often not explicitly in the form of gaslighting um which is when you know you're sort of convinced that your sanity and your instincts aren't right um but just from that implicit thing that we get when we grow up like if you don't want to like um hug and kiss an uncle or something and you're told to just do it 
uh, when you get mm. when you feel a bit afraid of something and you know your parents or your teachers or your peers who are very good naturedly trying to push you to extend your boundaries like sort of encourage you to ignore how you're feeling and do it I think those people often have the very best intentions but it all contributes to the fact that we are taught very strongly not to trust our instincts mm. and think the best of people and we're often sort of like told off if you're like this guy kind of makes me feel yuck and you don't have reasons for it mm. and it's like um oh god a friend of a friend in Dunedin at one point like I just didn't like spending time with him and at one point she was like well why I'm like it seems like he wouldn't listen to you if you said no and she was like well you know you have no basis for that and it's like no I don't but I also don't want to spend time with him because he like I get that vibe from him and I just I don't want that vibe in my life mm. And so it is really hard to trust it when you get it. And it is really hard to figure out what that means. And I think in order to like, like we shouldn't have to have a radar for sexual harassers in order to protect ourselves. And yet we we do. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact that like we are taught from a very young age to then not trust that radar, that makes it so much more difficult. And I think like that's, that's the kind of idea of the vibe is like, you want to trust the vibe. You've been told your entire life that you should not trust the vibe and you should not listen to the vibe. Hmm. Yeah. I think we can we can believe in the best of people at the same time. We can we can avoid people and believe in the best in them. I think <laughs> I think is the conclusion that I'm coming to. <laughs> yeah. Like you're probably lovely. I'd like you to be at like across the room from me, please. <laughs> <laughs> you're probably nice. I I can't explain like the weird vibes, so I'm just going to I'm just going to go. <laughs> I'm just going to be over there. Um for those of you who are interested, uh Netflix has cuddle ties with Louis CK. They're not producing any more stand-up specials. Um, Four hours ago, it looks like Louis C.K. put out a statement saying these stories are true. Um, I'm so sorry. I'll become a better person. Fuck off. Like, and the stuff I've read on Twitter is just like, he knows that everyone loves a redemption arc. This is the thing that gets me a lot with these sexual harassers um it's it's a thing that really really oh it just makes my skin crawl with um with Cosby as well is that Mm. these are men in the media who know how to control narrative it's the thing it's like the thing that you were talking about with Kevin Spacey as well like he knew exactly what would what headline to give everyone and they know exactly, like, they know the ins and outs of the media and they know exactly how to manipulate it to their benefit. And that just, it creeps me out in such an indescribable way. Because the the women who are speaking up, who are doing the incredibly brave act of putting themselves out there, reliving these traumas, they don't have that power and they don't have that insider knowledge and they don't have those connections. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's just, oh, I'm just ready to like have all of these, uh, these production companies drop a bunch of shitty people and just move on. That's, I'm just ready to move on. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and I mean, um, 
Netflix has cancelled, like, the next season of House of Cards, mm. which uh, the news stories I read about it said, well, at least a fictional president can lose his job from sexual assault allegations. Yeah. <laughs> Too real. Too real. Too real. What a wild world we live in. <laughs> but also, like, in sort of circling back to social media very quickly, mm. um, <laughs> often these women find the power to speak out because they find other people have been affected, often via something like social media. Mm. Um, it's like, so... don't quite know how to phrase this story. I was sexually assaulted by a guy who I became really good friends with afterwards. And this is what I mean when I say we're taught not to trust our instincts. Mm. Um, <laughs> and for a really long time, I kind of like, I couldn't explain why I felt gross whenever someone brought up the fact that we had hooked up. Mm -hmm. I was just like, maybe it's just weird because we're friends now. And, you know, he's more like a brother to me. Mm. Like maybe that's just what's creeping me out. Then we had a really big fight and we stopped being friends and I sort of, like, talked about what had happened in very vague terms. And someone who I'd spoken to, like, twice, right, mm. messaged me on Facebook and said, was it this person? Because he did a similar thing to me. Wow. And that I think, like, that's the power of social media in these circumstances. Yes, these men can control narratives. Yes, they're often very good at doing that. But we can find each other on social mm. media. We can have... Not we cannot have that gaslighting undone, but we can have our instincts and our experiences reaffirmed. Mm. And I think that's a hugely powerful thing. And like with all the problems, with all the advertising, with all the like convincing people not to vote in the twenty sixteen election, mm. what we do have is each other. What we do have is our stories and the ability to tell them. And that is not something that existed before social media. Absolutely, it's the it's the power to connect people who would otherwise not be connected and I, I sounds like an ad for facebook but continue <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well I, I i have seen a lot of talk uh from women not women that i know just like women that i've seen on the social meds talking about how everyone knows that all these women are coming out now right now because they know that if they come out with their stories later they might not be believed like in some sense they are hopping on this train because otherwise the world won't listen to them won't will think they're lying will think they're doing it for attention they're they're coming out now because they can have that support group they can have their their stories reaffirmed by others who have suffered through the same abuse it's it's such a strange dynamic and I keep I keep thinking about like because I work in tech and uh, a disease that um, people who work in tech have is that they think they can uh, build anything to solve problems um, so <laughs> the only thing that's running through my head now is like can I build a social media network that like connects people through their interests and what they're talking about uh, and their niches but doesn't optimize for advertising and like has some other yeah that's the only thing that's running through my head because is that did you just invent tinder tinder yeah because people list their interests like 
Because then does it uh, connect to your Facebook? It lists the things you've liked on Facebook that you have in common, mm. the groups you might have in common, the friends you might have in common. Mm. Um, and the only um, increase in money thing you do is if you want access to like great, a larger number of matches rather than advertising. Yeah. So I think I think you just invented Tinder, Serena. Kind of so something Tinder, like, like that. for friends. Yeah, Tinder for friends. <laughs> That's exactly it. Tinder for friends. I don't know. Social media, it's it's like um, the Industrial Revolution. It's like the advent of the internet. It's something that's not going to go away. So how the hell do we deal with this bot problem? How the hell do we deal with the bad actors? How do we make this better? Is is the thing that's been running through my head nonstop lately. And I think a, like a big part of that is because I work in tech, I've been conditioned to believe that, like, I have the power to to solve some of these problems. And, I mean, some of that's right. Um, but also I'm very aware of the fact that everyone in tech thinks this and that's how we got shit like Uber. <laughs> Reinventing buses. Oh, God. Did you, did you hear that um, the city of San Francisco told, I don't know if it was Uber or Lyft, told one of the ride-sharing services to do passenger pickup areas? That's incredible. Yeah, and, and it's I'm like, so happy that San Francisco is just like, just be a boss. Yeah, it's like, did you did you just reinvent buses? Uh, a while ago, Airbnb came out with an announcement that they were going to build like Airbnb houses. It's like, did you just invent hotels? <laughs> well, done. I do kind of love it though. Yeah. <laughs> This has been Things of Interest. Uh, we've talked a lot about social media, a lot about the influence on it it has on our lives, both negative and positive. Uh, we've talked a lot about how capitalism is bad. Not too bad, but still pretty bad. We've talked a lot about the um, recent Hollywood uh, sexual harassment scandals, which by the time you're listening to this, there's probably... There'll be more. Yeah, there will most likely, most likely be more. Uh, and yeah, I wonder if, I wonder if that's still going in the in the media. We talked about how fucked Australia is. We talked about how fucked Australia is. Uh, if you are an Australian listener, please talk to, please call your representatives. Um, please do whatever you can. If you're in New Zealand, I think there's a. Uh, there are a bunch of petitions going around. Um, put your name on those, sign those. It's It really takes up like none of your time. Please do it because 700 people are on, on an island, just left there, which is, I, I can't believe that's happening, but it is. And if you're in New Zealand and you want to help closer to home, there are a bunch of homeless refuges, not the Salvation Army, <laughs> but basically anything else is fine. Um, I think there can be a desire to help people in your own country before you help people in other countries, and you can do that. Mm. Um, there are a lot of women's refuges that really need funding. Absolutely. So if you have a spare $5, that would be uh, as useful as signing a petition. You can do both. Yes. Also, you can find us on social media. We're uh, with Things of Interest on Facebook, we're Casting Interest on Twitter, and you can email us at castinginterest at gmail.com. You can find us, obviously you've found us, uh, on iTunes or any other podcast network with Things of Interest, and 
Hey, if you have a moment and you have feelings about us, like feel free to rate us and leave us a review. Uh, we really like your feedback. It's been really nice. Yeah. Uh, so I think we've got like enough sort of emotional buffering now that if you want to be <laughs> a little bit constructive criticism, we could take that as well. That's totally cool. For every two nice things, you can say a not nice thing, and we're totally cool with that. <laughs> it's the compliment sandwich. Compliment sandwich. Um. So I've been Sophia Franks. And I'm Serena Chen. And as always, stay interesting. <laughs>no it's it's been a good talk uh we we haven't recorded in a while so it's it's been good to do this again and as always stay interesting also you can find us on social media oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs>